Anyway, uh, this morning, I have the great pleasure to introduce to you John G. And you can come up now. He was walking up. I'm like, go sit back down. We're not ready for you. Uh, John's going to actually speaking to you this morning. I, it was my great pleasure to actually get to marry John and his wife, not in a creepy way like I married them. You know, like they're both married. But I performed their ceremony. Isn't that weird? It sounds weird to say that, right? I have married plenty of women. You know, just... I just married another one yesterday. You know, it just it's, it sounds so weird, right? Anyway, so I'm just going to be done now. All right, this, this is John. Hi, guys. I'll try. I'm not promising anything. Um, please ride as we read God's word. Isaiah 9, 6. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called the Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Dear Heavenly Father, um, thank you so much for meeting us here today um, and being our Wonderful Counselor, Lord. You have walked with us through our brokenness. Thank you, Lord. Amen. You can be seated. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Jonathan G. I'm a deacon here at Element, and I lead a GC with my amazing wife, Michelle. Uh, I'm currently getting my master's in psychology at Cal Poly San Luis Obispo, and I'll be done in August. I, uh, yeah, that is applause worthy. Um, it's been a long time, um, and I'm currently a therapist at County Mental Health, so kind of applicable for the wonderful counselor sermon. But for those of you who are new to Element, welcome. Um, we are near the end of a 14-week series on Jesus, but even when this is over, we will still be talking about Jesus, because that's what we always talk about. Um, the next sermon series is around a year, and it's going to be on Sermon on the Mount. So once again, Jesus gave Sermon on the Mount, so it's, that's our drum. Jesus goes by a plethora of different names throughout Scripture. The vine, the truth, the life, the everlasting Father. But to me, the most powerful is the Wonderful Counselor probably because of my background in psychology. And Isaiah 9-6, once again, says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. When Isaiah calls the coming Messiah the Wonderful Counselor, he indicates a certain type of character the coming king is going to have. Like if I were to say, my beautiful wife, Michelle, it not only tells a little bit about her, but also how I see her. Likewise, if I was to say that eccentric Pastor Aaron, you get a little information about who Aaron is. Um, When the scriptures, which are inspired by God, talk about the coming of Jesus, we are told that he will be the wonderful counselor. The word wonderful wonderful comes from the Hebrew word pele, which means marvelous, extraordinary, or uncommon. In this passage from Isaiah, wonderful literally means incomprehensible. The Messiah will come and cause us to be full of wonder. The word is much weightier than it is used in normal conversations today. For example, I uh, think the Rolling Stones are wonderful. Bagels are wonderful. Um, Anything that is Anything of lovely nature or the least bit likable sometimes gets the word wonderful, but that's not how it was meant to be used. 
Um, Jesus is wonderful in a way that is so totally mind-blowing, we actually cannot comprehend it. The same word um, for wonderful is used in Judges 13.8, which says, When Manoah, Samson's father, asked the Lord what his name was, the angel of the Lord responded, Why do you ask my name, seeing that it is wonderful? In other words, why do you ask my name, since it is beyond your understanding? Jesus demonstrated his wonderfulness in various ways when he was here on earth. He showed he is the wonderful one with his power to heal and through his teachings, which are very counterintuitive to human nature. If you look at uh, Matthew 5, there's a list of examples that just seem strange to us, even in today's culture. Blessed are those who mourn, rejoice, and be glad in persecution. That doesn't seem right. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Once again, these are all things that are very foreign to how we live our life today. Jesus' kind of wonderful is awe-inspiring and superior to any kind, for he is perfect in every way. One of the best things about Jesus, though, is that his wonder, or one thing that's wonderful about him, is he came down to earth as a man, so he knows our struggles. Uh, Hebrews 4.15 says this, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet without sin. Jesus' wonderfulness ultimately culminates in his resurrection. The second part of the Messiah's title is the word counselor. Counselor comes from the Hebrew word yah-at. Um, I'm sorry if I butchered that for any native Hebrew speakers. Um, but this means advisor or wise man. In ancient Israel, a counselor is portrayed as a wise king, someone like Solomon, who gives guidance to his people. 1 Kings 4.34 says this, Men of all nations came to listen to Solomon's wisdom, sent by all the kings of the world and who had heard of his wisdom. But my favorite verse about a counselor comes from Micah 4.9. It really shows the importance of the counselor role. Why do you now cry aloud? Have you no king? Has your counselor perished? And that pain seizes you like that of a woman in labor. Counselors are so important that when they are not around, people are crying and suffering in anguish. Jesus is a wise counselor. He does not need any testimony about mankind because he knows what is in each and every person. Jesus is able to advise his people thoroughly because he is qualified in ways no human counselor ever will be. Christ's position as our wonderful counselor means we can trust him to listen to our problems, know us better than we even know ourselves, and guide us to um, the right decisions, which is that exemplified in Proverbs 3, 6, which states, In all of your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. So please turn to uh, John 8, and we're going to actually look at an example of how Jesus counsels, um, now that we know what a wonderful counselor is. So in John 8, 4, an adulteress was brought before Jesus by the Pharisees, who said, Teacher, This woman was caught in the act of adultery. 
In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? John 8, 7 through 11 says this. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away, one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Um, Jesus said and stood up, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, Lord, she said. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go from now on and sin no more. Talk about a lesson in group therapy. Peter Christ says it best. Jesus' response gives the adulteress both forgiveness and a stern warning. The Pharisees got a lesson in their own hypocrisy. The bystanders who were tempted to be like the Pharisees got a lesson in humility. And the disciples got a lesson on Christ's authority to forgive sins. The very same word or deed in Christ is um, in the Gospels frequently both comforts the afflicted and afflicts the comfortable. This response is radically different than you would get in modern psychology. And I would know because I have to just do the first part of the response, which is unconditional positive regard. The idea behind this is um, the therapist or the counselor will accept and support everything the client says um, to provide them with a sense of acceptance, which will lead for growth. So Jesus does that. Um, He says, neither do I condemn you. So that falls into that category. But the second part is very different. Jesus loves us unconditionally. He sees our sin and decides to love us regardless. In Romans 5.8, it says this, But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How much more meaningful is it to know that our creator, who knows us deeper than anyone, loves us more passionately than our spouse, our best friend, and does not get paid to tell you they support you. But the second and no less important part, as I said, is where it differs from modern psychology. He says, go and sin no more. With authority, Jesus forgives us our sins. But he also commands us to stop in our tracks, repent, and change our ways. This response forces us to take responsibility for our own action, abandon our pride, and humble ourselves. Jesus loves us no matter what we do, but he wants us to change so we could radiate his glory and love that he has shown to us so we may show that to others. If you go see a therapist or a counselor, whatever you want to call it, a large part of it is a diagnosis. Um, The reason for that is you need to know what the problem is before you could fix it, essentially. Um, So the diagnosis of the human condition is actually pretty bleak without the wonderful counselor. Both Christians and secularists agree that humans are intrinsically selfish, but they call it by radically different names. But the problem is still the same. Christians call this state the original sin, which is a radically unpopular doctrine that makes many cringe when they hear it. But it's very similar to a more popular doctrine by Freud called the pleasure principle. Um, However, Freud's view of humanity is maybe a little bit darker than um, Christianity's. 
because Christianity does not believe we are selfish little pigs like Freud does. A human's initial working philosophy is I want what I want when I want it. St. Augustine, who is St. Augustine and not St. Augustine, as he's commonly called, um, commented on this by saying, the innocence of babies is in the helplessness of their bodies, not in the virtues of their souls. As a result of original sin, life is fleeting, happiness is vanishing, and death is inevitable. There is only one hope, and it's the hope that Jesus offers. But there is hope for the Christian. The difference between the secularist and the Christian is this. For Christianity, it is our disease, not our design. Did you hear that? It's our disease, not our design. It can and will be destroyed. Whereas the secularist, it is just human nature, and all we could do is cope or accept it. In other words, Christianity is abundantly more optimistic than the secular alternative. In the human condition, we are all naturally unhappy. Blaise Pascal, who was an ancient philosopher and theologian, says this, If our condition were truly happy, we should not need to divert ourselves from thinking about it. If you don't like hearing that naturally you are unhappy, I challenge you when you go home today to actually sit alone in your room, no technology, no music, just be alone in your thoughts for 15 minutes. It'll be a lot harder than a lot of you expect, and you'll be anxiously looking at the clock. Pascal also says that a root of discontentment is found because men do not know how to quietly sit in their room. We are never satisfied with what we have. We have an insatiable desire to get more and more. And we fall into the world's most universally failed experiment, the if-only syndrome. If I have this, then I will be happy. If I save enough money and buy a yacht, then I'll be happy. If I get the new Xbox, then I'd be happy. If I find a spouse, then I'd be happy. Maybe for some of you in the room, if I had a new spouse, then I'd be happy. (laughs) The problem with this is happiness is always elusive. As a result, we will never be happy, but only have the hope to be happy. C.S. Lewis comments on our desires um, in The Weight of Glory and says this, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what it means by a holiday at the sea. For we are far too easily pleased. Christ offers us something that the world will never be able to. He offers us a love, a true, unconditional, positive regard, and a way out of this discontentment. I have been pretty academic up to this point. Um, I'm going to tell a story of my own personal counsel with Jesus, um, so you could actually wake up now. Uh, I grew up with an amazing, loving Christian family. We were blessed with finances. I had a great community of friends. My family had their health. And me and my sister um, had great education opportunities. The list goes on and on. Essentially, I had everything I ever wanted. But around my junior year of high school, I became deeply depressed. I did not talk to anyone about it, because when family or friends asked if I was okay, what do you think I said? Just the typical response. I'm fine. I'm good. Don't worry about it. 
but I wasn't. I would always downplay my feelings, and during this time in my life, I was suicidal, and it didn't scare me at all. I began to distance myself from God. As a result, I started to numb myself out to the world around me. I withdrew further and further into myself and became blinded to the needs and desires of others. This selfishness was my prison. I handled it, or at least tried to handle it on my own, but it wasn't working. During my senior year of high school, I missed more school than I ever should have been allowed to miss, and I actually got a letter from the attendance officer saying, if I was to miss another day of school, I wouldn't be able to graduate. Um, Luckily, she really liked me for some reason and said, I will clear all of your absences if you go to my husband's Bible study. Seemed like an easy choice. Um, But in high school, during that time, I was very depressed. I didn't do anything. I just wanted to lay in bed. I felt like God did not care about my struggles, so why would I share them with him? Why would I care about God? This intense depression that I had lasted for more days than not until my junior year of college. During this time, I took a semester at San Francisco and worked in San Francisco General Psychiatric Ward um, at the General Hospital. This was a locked inpatient facility, so you had a set of doors, you would open it, lock, and then another set of doors open. I remember as the first time um, I went in through those double doors, I was met with a lot of anxiety for fear of what I would um, view on the other side. I believed it would be the most chaotic scene imaginable. People would be yelling in straitjackets, pulling their hair out. Um, Nurse Ratchet would be there, and she'd be (laughs) waiting to give people lobotomies or injections. My perception of psych wards was shaped by popular culture. But when the doors did open, nothing could prepare me for what I actually saw. I saw a group of patients calmly doing yoga with a doctor. I saw people playing ping pong, laughing. And I saw a group of women sitting quietly reading magazines. I saw normalcy, and I wasn't prepared for that. Although there were moments of severity where the patients resembled something like their depiction in popular culture, it was just that. It was a moment, passing moments. The golden standard was normalcy, and that was infinitely harder for me to deal with than the emotionally acute moments. During this time, God was working on my heart and forced me to recognize my own brokenness. I was broken, just like my patients. I am broken, just like them. Broken, just like you. But we do go about our lives normally, and we try and cope. Upon recognizing my brokenness, my sin, and how fundamentally unhappy I had become, I cried out to God and opened myself up to his counsel. I asked for wisdom. I asked for his presence. I cried for his strength, and God heard my prayers. However, my depression did not get eliminated after I cried out to God. But it did become much more manageable. Sometimes God will heal you completely, which was spoken about a few weeks ago with Trevor. But a large portion of the time, like a good counselor, he will not fix the problem in and of itself but he will give you tools to help. And he will walk with you through your darkness, and you could learn to be a blessing despite your own brokenness. After all, I found um, Christ's love 
shines brightest in the most unlikely of places. There's an idea in popular Christian culture that says God will never give you more than you could handle. I think this idea is total crap. Um, it's not true, simply. God frequently gives you more than you can handle because it forces you to recognize you are not the end-all, be-all. And that's what being in the psych ward forced me to do. I believe God frequently gives you more than you can handle. And as I've said, it gives you a reason to call out for God and ask for his assistance. Receiving Jesus' wonderful counsel is easier than you might expect, but it does still take effort on our part. First and foremost, you have to show up. You have to go to Jesus. This is an astonishingly simple idea, but actually difficult to do when you are stressed or just living your own life. You cannot get paid if you do not go to work. You can't receive counseling if you do not show up for the sessions. But we get angry. We harden our hearts and turn away from God if we feel he is distant from us. Honestly, one of my least favorite verses in the Bible comes from Deuteronomy 4.29. Here it says, Seek the Lord and you will find him. If you search after him with all your heart and with all your soul. A tall order. Every time I personally have felt that God is distant from me, I blame him for leaving, but he has never left. He has always been present in my life, just my priorities have been skewed. I've been focusing on things that I need to do because I'm important, but in reality, my importance comes from God. God is always both perfectly hidden and perfectly revealed. And that's what the verse in Deuteronomy is saying. It's not we're playing hide and seek with God, but our priorities need to be readjusted back to him. The second step is to ask for God's wisdom. In James 1.5, it says, If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault. And it will be given to you. However, wisdom is very different than wish fulfillment. Oftentimes people think um, God is their genie in a bottle and will solve all their problems. That's, that's not the way it works. Like a scab um, or a cut on your arm, it takes time to heal. Oftentimes becoming a Christian does not mean that you are healed completely, as I hinted at earlier. But it means you have to walk through that, that time of recovery. Um, if you turn to uh, Psalm 38, this is a great example of the third step of Jesus' wonderful counsel. David, the great king and psalmist, says this, There is no soundness in my flesh because of thy indignation. There is no health in my bones because of my sin. My iniquities have gone over my head. They weigh like a burden too heavy for me. My wounds grow foul and fester because of my foolishness. I am utterly bowed down and prostrate. All the day I go mourning, for my loins are filled with burning, and there is no soundness in my flesh. I am utterly spent and crushed. I groan because of the tumult of my heart. That is a heavy prayer, um, and it's a real 
honest prayer. I'm not sure how many people have actually gone to God honestly, but when you do, you are much more likely to receive God's counsel. Jesus says, Come to me, in Matthew 11:28. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He tells us to rise, to leave our comfortable beds behind, and walk with him. Most importantly, he tells us to continue with him and do not veer off the path of faith. Only by complete trust in the wonderful counselor can we be healed. It's one of the reasons why we come to communion every week. Christ's body was broken for us. Um, with the, his body um, was broken on the cross and his blood was poured out. And as a result, we can become whole through him. Um, I'm going to invite the band back up so they could sing a few songs because that's another way we worship. Um, We give because God has given so much to us. Uh, There's offering boxes on the sides and in the back. And there's going to be deacons and elders in the back if you need to talk or pray with anyone. I highly encourage taking them up on that offer. Do not be like me and suffer silently. Um, Please pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for all that you have given us. Um, Not only a place to come worship you and gather closer to you, but a wonderful counselor who has come into our life. Despite our own brokenness and our sin, you have walked beside us and you loved us. Lord, you guide us in the right direction whenever the moment does not seem like we have wisdom. You are good and you give us everything we desire, Lord. Thank you so much. In his name, amen.